Because these are truths that people actually have died for. Uh, we just heard about William, Tyn- William Tyndale, who eventually lost his life trying to get the Bible into the hands of his fellow countrymen. He was strangled and then burned because he translated the Bible into English. So I want to begin by asking you how seriously you're taking these truths. Whether you would be willing to die for these five truths that we're working through. Would you stand up and live and fight and die for these five truths? Or or are we all just talk? In our society at the moment, religious extremism is not exactly popular. The last thing I want to be labeled is a religious extremist, a fundamentalist, a radical. But of course, extremism is not really the problem, is it? When people are extremely wrong, that's a problem. Islamic extremism is a terrible blight on our world. Men and women who take the Quran too seriously end up being filled with extreme violence and hatred because the Quran is filled with violence and hatred. I'm just glad most Muslims don't take the Quran more seriously. I'm glad most atheists don't take their philosophy more seriously. If we're all just animals, we can behave like animals. What a scary world we would live in if atheists actually followed through on their rhetoric. So yes, being extremely wrong is bad. But that doesn't mean we are not to be extreme. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. Uh, In Luke 14, Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Every one of you who does not say goodbye to all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Luke 14 verse 33. That's pretty extreme, isn't it? Radical. And you notice Jesus is not talking about a goal we ought to strive towards as Christians. He's talking about the bare minimum. If you are not willing to give up everything, every relationship, every comfort, all your possessions, you cannot be my disciple is what he says. Christianity, by its very nature, is extreme. We follow an extremely demanding king, a king who models for us, but also requires of us extremely radical self-sacrifice and commitment to the cause. Is your Christianity extreme enough? If not, my hope this evening is that you will be radicalized. In particular... Tonight, I want, to, I want us to come away with the same passion that Tyndale had for the Scriptures. Because if we take the Scriptures seriously, we will be extremely devoted to the Lord Jesus. We will be extremely concerned for the welfare of our fellow man. We will be extremely loving and kind and good. If we understand the significance of this book we have in our hands this evening then we will be ready to live and die to ensure that it is freely available to everyone. We will regularly and carefully read it ourselves. We will meditate on it day and night. We'll think about it. We'll talk about it with each other. We will make sure our gatherings are saturated with it. We will boldly proclaim it to the world. We will revel in it. We will lead. Uh, we will live it out. So, If you've got an outline in front of you, 
you'll see that I want to cover this evening. Uh, what I want to cover this evening is fairly simple. At least the headings are simple, but don't let that fool you. For the most part, I just want to focus on the implications of the fact that the Bible is God's word. Those four implications. Uh, but before we get to that, I just want to reflect a little bit on the nature of words uh, kind of altogether. You see, what exactly is a word? I know it sounds like a simple question. But I mean, I've got words on the page in front of me, by which I'm referring to uh, the arrangement of pixels. Uh, you, you have strokes of ink in front of you. So do I. But words are not just visual, right? I'm also speaking words, aren't I? Uh, I mean, vibrations are moving through the air from my mouth to your ears, and we'd call those words. And, and even then beyond that, we can talk about body language, where I suppose kind of words are certain gestures, aren't they? On top of that, we can talk about words as individual things, but we can also talk about words corporately. For instance, someone, someone might say, well, you'll just have to take my word for it. Meaning, not a specific word that I have said, but the whole message that I have conveyed. So you see, it's not, it's not quite as simple a question as you might at first think. What is a word? The answer is, a word is a communication. It's like a little parcel of meaning. Communicated from one person to another, from one mind to another meaning communicated. Words are how we act and influence and affect one another's minds. So they're very powerful, these words. They affect and change us at the deepest level. They don't just describe reality, they change reality. Words can encourage or rebuke. They can explain something or enlighten someone, but they can frighten someone. They can calm someone. They can bind people together when, when people make vows or serious promises to each other. They can command people to act. They can declare war or peace. Ultimately, words are the tools we use to create community. Okay, no surprises there. Communication is ultimately about creating and shaping community. But get this then. God communicates to you. Because he wants to be in communion with you. He wants you to be in, in his community. God wants you to know his mind and he wants to shape your mind and even vice versa. I don't want to overstep the mark. But when you consider the wonderful privilege that God gives us in prayer, in speaking to him, he says he will listen to us and he will act because of what we have said. You see, ultimately God our God is a speaking God because in his wonderful love and kindness, he is a God who wants to relate to us. Who wants us to be in communion with him, him to be in our community. Uh, and ultimately, God's word to us is his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 says, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. And if you've got a Bible in front of you, which rocks, by the way. Go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Life was in him. And that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. I'd love to keep reading, but these verses are massively significant, aren't they? Uh, Our God is a God who speaks, who makes himself known. But more than that, our God is a word, is what verse 1 says. That is, when God speaks and makes himself known, his revelation of himself is so full, as it were, that it is actually him when he speaks. His word is actually him. I don't think I've ever quite wrapped my head around this, but I'm sure that's what the passage is saying. I mean, John is clearly alluding back to Genesis chapter 1, isn't he? In the beginning, God said, let there be light. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. The way God interacts with his world is he communicates his will to his world when he speaks. And as he speaks, the life and the light that he has in himself which is what he is, is communicated to his creation. And then John says in verse 14, just skip down to verse 14, the word, the word which was with God in the beginning, the word which was God, which is God, the word became flesh and took up residence among us. You see, how does God ultimately communicate himself? Through his son who became flesh. So Jesus is not a particular vibrations of air, uh, uh, you know, set of vibrations of air. He's not ink splodges, but he is a word. He is God's word to us because he is how God communicates himself to his creation. And in order to make God's communication to us as clear and full as possible, the word became one of us. His communication took on the likeness of the people to whom he wanted to communicate. Wow. Now, I know that's all pretty intense and dense, and I haven't got my head around it either. But I just want us to get that clear in our minds up front before we start talking now about the Scriptures. Because if Jesus is the Word of God, then what do we mean when we say that this book in front of us is also the Word of God? Because we don't mean that this book is Jesus. Uh, Actually, just as an aside, when I used to work at the cathedral, I remember a guy coming up to me. I don't think he was all there. Um, He, you know, uh, a few, yeah, anyway. uh, He came up to me and said, I am the Bible. I just kind of looked at him like, I don't know what to say. I asked him actually which one. Um, because we had several Bibles there. And uh, then we, he, he, he looked at me as if I was the crazy person. He looked at me as if you... Anyway, uh, look, that's an aside. Uh, my point is to say that this... Just a little brain break. My point is to say that this, we're not saying... When we say Jesus is the Word of God, we're not saying Jesus is the Bible. We don't mean that this book is God, like John chapter 1 says. But we do mean that through this book and through the simple reading of this book, when you're reading this book, we are genuinely interacting with and experiencing God. 
through Jesus. So God himself is personally and directly speaking to us as we read this book. So that as we read this book, God's life and light is communicated to us. God himself is personally meeting with us. So now turn back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I just want to focus on verse 16, and in fact, just the first line of verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God. Literally, it says, all the writings, that's what scripture means, all the writings are breathed out by God. Okay? In other words, you know when you speak and you put your hand in front of your mouth and you, you can feel your breath carrying along your words. You can't speak without your breath carrying your words along. Paul is saying that that is how all scripture, this book, was written. That's how this book was written. This is how Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Job and Numbers were written. They are God's words carried along by his breath, his spirit, onto the pages of the Bible. And then ultimately they're carried from the pages of the Bible into our minds and hearts and through us onto others. Now, let me just clarify what this is not saying then. It's not saying that God inspired some biblical authors in the sense that he kind of gave them extraordinary religious intuition the same way we might describe Leonardo da Vinci as inspired or something like that. Now, and it's not saying that God just left a spiritual impression upon certain holy men of the past, which led them to write down some pretty wonderful words. No, and it's not saying that God's spirit influenced the author at the conceptual level, at the level of meaning kind of thing, but he left the exact words up to the authors themselves, up to the human authors themselves. No. Notice that in 2 Timothy 3.16, it's not the authors here who are described as inspired. It's the writings themselves. On the other end of the spectrum, uh, kind of, we need to be clear, though, it's also not saying that the human authors had nothing to do with the process. As if God just dictated to them or used them like pens or typewriters. No, Paul is saying that even though the scriptures were genuinely written by human authors, and we can find all sorts of evidence of uh, kind of the normal human processes of writing down a book kind of thing. You know, different books have different styles and so on, and you can see editing and that kind of thing. But still, at the very same time, God was working through the whole process by the Holy Spirit so that every word those authors chose was also at the same time God's choice. Exactly what he wanted to communicate. Coming from his mouth, so to speak, just as much as from theirs. Okay, so the words of scripture, every word of scripture ultimately comes from God, has been carried along by his breath, his spirit, onto the pages of scripture. Now, there are four big implications of this that I want to spend the rest of our time talking about. There are lots of other implications, actually, that we could talk about, but I just want to focus on four. So because the Bible is God-breathed, therefore it is true, 
clear, sufficient, and authoritative. Okay, so number one, the Bible is true. That's because God doesn't make mistakes and God doesn't lie. Therefore, everything in the Bible is absolutely true and you can stake your life on it. And now, of course, this is not saying that everything you think the Bible says is true. You could be wrong, but the Bible is not. It's also not saying that everything in the Bible is literal. Right? When Jesus describes himself as a door, he's not lying just because he doesn't have hinges and a handle. What he's saying is true if you understand that he's talking metaphorically. Similarly, when the Bible talks about the sun setting or the sun rising, it's not, it's not that God is confused about the orbit of the planets, as if he doesn't know that the earth spins. But he's just talking the way we all normally speak. You know, I know the earth spins, but I still talk about the sun rising, don't, don't you? So to say that the Bible is true in everything that it says is not to say that it never kind of approximates or exaggerates, uh, like uses hyperbole, or, or uses metaphors or similes or allegories. It uses all the normal ways of human communication, but it is never wrong. God never lies. God never makes mistakes about any issue. So you can stake your life on God's word. The second implication of the fact that the Bible is God's word is that it is clear. You can understand it. Sometimes our words are muddled, ambiguous, and confusing. We know what we're trying to say, but we just can't seem to get it across. God's word is never like that. God is able to communicate exactly what he wants to communicate to whoever he wants to speak to. He spoke in the darkness and said, let there be light. And there was light. He spoke into the tomb of Lazarus and said, come out. And he came out. God can speak to you and make sure you understand what he's saying. This is exactly what drove William Tyndale to translate the Bible into the language of the ordinary people. He was convinced of the clarity of Scripture. Scripture is not just for the educated, but for the uneducated. Not just for the middle class, but for men of every class. Not just for adults, but for children. Not just for scholars or Bible teachers, but for the whole church. Remember what Tyndale said, the the Roman Catholic Church of his day taught that the scriptures were too complicated for regular people to understand and that it would be dangerous to put it into their hands. Tyndale said to that blasphemous clergyman who declared that he would rather have the Pope's laws than God's laws, Tyndale said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spares my life, before many years, I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. Uh, King David says a similar thing in Psalm 119, verse 99, where he says, I've always loved this verse. I have more insight than all my teachers because your decrees are my meditation. That's what David says. You see, the Bible is not just for the learned. It's for the simple, you know, for fools. But it makes the simple wise. Now, this doctrine is not saying that the Bible is simple in the sense that you'll always understand everything it says the first time you read it, you know, without putting any effort, you know, kind of galloping past on a horse, glancing at John 17. You'll work out what it says kind of thing. It's not saying that. And it's not saying that scholarship is useless 
or that we don't need translators and teachers. I mean, of course, Tyndale himself was a scholar who worked hard to provide a clear translation of the scriptures that the plowboy could understand. So it's not saying that if you just happen to come across a Greek New Testament, you'll probably pick it up um, kind of fast enough. No. It's not as if the clarity of scripture leaves no place for teachers or translators or, or anything, but it is saying that scholars and teachers do not have a monopoly on the Bible as if it's only for them, as if they're the only ones who know what it says or who can handle what it says. And in fact, they can be challenged by the simple plowboy who is also reading his Bible and understanding what it says. They can be challenged, which is why you can always challenge me, I would say. It's why you can always ask questions. It's why you can always hold a different view because you, you can challenge me. And you can challenge any one of uh, the ministry staff or anything like that. There is no sense in which the Bible is mine. I know what it says. You don't. If you want to know what it says, you have to come through me. Now, the Bible is clear. God speaks directly to you, even if this is the first week you've picked it up. Uh, thirdly, the Bible is sufficient, by which I mean that the Bible is enough. The Bible is all you need for salvation and godliness. Uh, Check out verse 14 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says to Timothy, As for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Did you see that last line? The scriptures are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. They don't need to be supplemented in any way. They are completely able. So it's not that the scriptures are sufficient to teach you everything, uh, kind of medicine and mathematics and mechanical engineering, and that's just the M's, but they do contain everything you need to know for salvation and godliness. If all you have is the scriptures, the scriptures are able to save you. And look down at verse 17. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Verse 17. So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, the scriptures are sufficient for teaching you godliness as well. The way of righteousness. If all you have is the scriptures and you don't have any uh, visions or mystical experiences or extra words of knowledge or access to the latest Christian guru or promptings or something, you don't need to worry that somehow God will leave you incomplete, unfinished, ill-equipped to live for him in his world. No, if you have the scriptures, they are able to make you complete equipped for every good work, there will be no situation you will come across where you will not be equipped if you stick by the scriptures. All right, and last uh, but not least, the scriptures are authoritative. And this is really where the clash with the Roman Catholic Church is at its most intense. Protestants affirm that scripture alone is our highest and final authority. It's not that scripture is our only source of knowledge and authority. 
But scripture is the highest source of knowledge and authority. Scripture is peerless. It is not judged or kept in check by anything or anyone. It is not bound by some other arbiter or interpreter. It is the final interpreter, uh, the final arbiter on all matters. It is the final interpreter of all things. It is the Supreme Court because it is the pure, unadulterated word of the Supreme Justice. You see, Scripture is the highest authority because God is the highest authority. And Scripture is God's word. And that's why we need to stand against the Roman Catholic lie that church traditions are on par with the authority of Scripture. Listen to the Roman Catholic Catechism from 1993, Part 1, Section 1, Chapter 2, Article 2. On the relationship between tradition, it's very detailed, the relationship between tradition and sacred Scripture. Sacred Scripture is the speech of God as it is put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. Couldn't have said that better. Nailed it. And holy tradition transmits in its entirety the word of God, which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. It transmits it to the successors of the apostles so that, Enlightened by the spirit of truth, they may faithfully preserve, expound, and spread it abroad by their preaching. As a result, the church, to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted, does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Did you follow that? In other words, in other words, scripture is the inspired word of God, yes. But the apostolic succession, i.e. the pope and his bishops, the magisterium, are also inspired by God in such a way that their words too are just as authoritative as the words of scripture. What blasphemy. And in fact, in practice, the Roman Catholic Church Church makes the scriptures subject to tradition because the meaning of scripture twists and turns to suit whatever the latest interpreter says it means. Now flick uh, flick over to Mark chapter 7 with me. where Jesus addresses the Pharisees who have let their tradition supersede the word of God. I'm going to start from verse 5 just for the sake of time. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with richly unclean hands? He answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Disregarding the command of God, you keep the tradition of men. He also said to them, you completely invalidate God's command in order to maintain your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, 
If a man tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is korban, that is, a gift committed to the temple, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You revoke God's word by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many other similar things. Now, I don't want to get bogged down on the particular issue Jesus was dealing with, but notice the core of the problem. The Pharisees are teaching the commands of men as if they were the doctrines of God. That's exactly what is happening in the Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholicism pays lip service to the Bible, but in fact, the Bible is not taken seriously. Every time church tradition clashes with the clear teaching of Scripture, church tradition is upheld and God's word is ignored. All right, well, it's time to wrap up. Uh, In a moment, I want to give you a chance to ask some questions. But first of all, I do just want you to ponder my question for you once again. Is this a truth worth dying for? How much do you value the Bible? That's kind of the implication of everything else I've been saying, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. Do not underestimate the value of this book that you have in your hands. You see, the Bible is God's word to us. Through it, he personally speaks to us. He brings us life. He enlightens us. He communes with us. We're in community with him. And because the Bible is God's word, it is absolutely true. It is crystal clear. It is perfectly sufficient. And it is supremely authoritative. This book is extraordinarily precious. Better to be a beggar with a Bible than a king without. Sometimes we don't treat this book as we deserve, do we? I think about my own life. If only I truly understood, deep down in my heart, how good this book is, how much more time would I spend reading it, meditating on it, talking about it? This book is worth dying for, which means it's definitely uh, worth living for. The Bible is more precious than gold. It is sweeter than honey. Do you have uh, any questions or comments before I close in prayer? Feel free to ask and I'll palm them off to Adrian. Yeah. I pretty much covered the topic, so yeah, that's fair. Uh, good, good, good thinking. Does anyone really want to ask a question? All right. Well, um, no worries. Uh, feel free to write them down on your connection card if you've got one, and um, talk to me afterwards and so on. Uh, as always, I want to encourage you to keep thinking about this beyond this little moment. If all if all we get together is kind of you know an hour a week to talk about the Bible, if that's all we give to it half an hour to do some really intense study together, that would be mistreating this book, wouldn't it? That would be not honoring and appreciating this word that God has given us.